An LL Cargo 747 is flying out of Amsterdam when an unexpected issue causes flight control problems. What caused this flight to crash into an apartment building? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... Emily! Yay! Yay. It's welcome. been a while. Yeah, welcome back, Emily. Yeah. Also, <laughs> if you uh, hear whining in the background, it's Christy and Nick's dog. We put a gate up so he can't get up here so the cats don't hiss and he doesn't bark and everything's okay, but now he's going to whine, so, so you've been hope- warned. Hopefully we don't have to deal with the, the chaos that we the- do normally with recording. Swat, swat, swat. Yes. Bark. Yeah. That. Yeah, all that, but he might whine enough to make up the difference, so... Segway to that. If you do want to hear any of that lovely content, please refer to our blooper reel. I'm sure there's and plenty Patreon. of Patreon. Yeah. Also, our Patreon friends that are relatively new and have not gotten their I'm stuff, sorry. we're sending it out this week, which is two weeks ahead from now. You probably already have it. Hopefully. We have everything for you. We had to go get stuff to send you, so you had everything for the thing. And Walmart was out of things like half the time, so yeah. it's a great time. We figured it out. It's fine. You should be getting it. Sorry for the delay. It's on its way. They try hard. Also, stay tuned for a listener question at the end of this episode. Okay. So, August stories are your flight school stories, or just a story, or whatever you want to tell us. Thank you. Thank you. That has been my public service announcement. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering LL Flight 1862. This is a cargo flight. Thank you to our patrons, Helen and Will, cool. for recommending this crash event. Thanks. You know more about planes than I do. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> this will be a good one. This one's uh, rough. But Emily's here because Miranda knows this one. I do know this one. <laughs> this one has a good backstory. We'll tell later. Yes, we will. Okay. This accident happened on October 4th of 1992. This was a 747-200F. For freighter. So this was a cargo flight. As we just said. Yep. This has a tail number for X-ray dash Alpha X-ray Golf. So mighty large airplane, 747, big four-engine airplane. This flight was to be from JFK in New York to Amsterdam in Holland to Tel Aviv in Israel. This is an Israeli airline. The captain for today's flight was Captain Yitzhak Fuchs. He was 59 years old. He had 25,000 flight hours. Total, oh my goodness. Which is huge. It's one of the most experienced people we've ever talked about. Of which, 9,500 hours were on the 747. So a lot of experience just on one airplane, as it is. First officer was Arnon Ohad. He was 32 years old. He had 4,288 hours total, of which 612 hours were on the 747. And then the flight engineer was Gedalia Sofer. He was 61 years old. And he had 26,000 flight hours. Oh, my God. He was also extremely experienced. Of which, 15,000 were on the 747. I don't, think wow. we've ever, I don't think we've ever talked about anybody who's so experienced on one airplane. And he was about to retire. Yep. There was also one passenger on board. Her name was Annette Solomon. She was 23 years old. She was an LL employee based in Amsterdam who was on her way home to get married. To another LL employee. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And tragic. Yeah. 
foreshadowing. I was going to say, <laughs> usually that's not a good tidbit. The flight stopped at Amsterdam for a crew change and a cargo swap before continuing to Tel Aviv. The crew I just explained was on this leg from Amsterdam to Tel Aviv. The plane had arrived at Amsterdam at 3.40 p.m. local time. They were then scheduled for departure at 6.30 p.m., but they did not receive an air traffic control slot time until 7.20 p.m. Now, mind you, I'm a little confused because current UTC time, apparently, Amsterdam is two hours off, but at the time, I'm not sure if it was only one hour. I'm, I, I'm so lost on this, but... Everything was in UTC time in the report, and I had to try to translate this into whatever Amsterdam time was, and I'm making the assumption that it was two hours difference, but could not be. Okay. Don't know yet. If could you be do totally know. Wrong. If you do know, let us know. I tried to look this up, and it told me two hours difference, but then that's really confusing to me. I wasn't really going close to correct you. That's fair. So, <laughs> None of us had None any of us were. <laughs> so anyways, the point is, this does happen in the evening. That's all you really need to know. The aircraft was also refueled while at Amsterdam with 74,200 liters of fuel for a total of 72 metric tons of fuel on board. Ooh, Betsy. That's That's a a lot of fuel. fuel. They were also to be carrying 114.7 metric tons of cargo for this leg. So also a lot of cargo. The crew had arrived at Amsterdam on another LL flight and had 20 hours of rest time before the flight. Two runways were in use at Amsterdam. One left for takeoff, and 06 for landing. The captain requested clearance for pushback at 7.04 p.m. The aircraft taxied out of the ramp at 7.14 p.m. The first officer was to be the pilot flying for this leg, and the captain was to be the pilot monitoring. The flight began its takeoff roll on 01 left at 7.21 p.m. The aircraft lifted off and began climbing out normally. The landing gear and flaps were retracted normally during climb-out. However, at 7.27 p.m. and 30 seconds... So this is now basically six minutes into the flight. A tremendous sound is heard by the crew, and the airplane almost immediately began banking to the right heavily. The crew began countering this heavy roll with full control inputs to the left. The captain likely took over the airplane as pilot flying at this point. The flight engineer and crew had indications of problems with the number three and number four engines. They appeared to be not working. They were basically in op. They were off. It's a big problem. Shortly after this, the three and four hydraulic systems began indicating failure as well. Out of four. So they still have two hydraulic systems, but now they're pretty limited, because they've lost half of their hydraulic systems. The first officer transmitted an emergency call. Quote, LL 1862, Mayday, Mayday, we have an emergency. The airplane began rolling back to wings level around this time as the captain continued to struggle with the controls. The air traffic controller confirmed the emergency radio call and began clearing traffic from the area. At 7.28 p.m. and 6 seconds, the air traffic controller asked if the flight wanted to return to Amsterdam, which, by the way, has the code EHAM. E-H-A-M. 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 Do I need to go back to E-H-A-M, please? Yes, E-H-A-M. It's not A-dot-ham. Nope. <laughs> I E-ham. need a E-H-A-M sandwich? Ham sandwich. <laughs> Most airports in uh, the European Union start with E. European Union. No. Really? Yeah. And then, this one makes a lot of sense, actually, if you break it down. It's Holland, Amsterdam. Ah, yeah. The crew acknowledged and requested the return to Amsterdam. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to 260, a heading of 260, and informed the crew of their position relative to Amsterdam, the airport. 
Witnesses on the ground claim that they saw the airplane turning right immediately after a loud bang had occurred, and then they thought what they saw was flames coming from the right wing that quickly sputtered out. They also claim that the airplane immediately began dumping fuel. 7.28 p.m. and 57 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that runway 06 was in use for landing, and winds were at 040 at 21 knots. So, a pretty hefty wind, actually. The crew responded that they wanted runway 27 for landing, because this was one of the longest runways, and it was also one of the most direct from their position. The air traffic controller acknowledged this and had the flight change frequency to the approach frequency. The crew did so, where they were then informed to change once more to the arrival frequency. Immediately. They did so again, so they had to change frequency twice in a minute. It's great. What a waste of time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just give me the right frequency the first time. Yeah. The airplane was only 7 miles from runway 27, but still at 5,000 feet, which was much too high to make a straight-in approach for the runway. So they were going to have to make a 360-degree turn to lose some altitude for the approach. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to 360 and descend to 2,000 feet. The crew acknowledged and started their turn. At 7.31 p.m. and 17 seconds, the air traffic controller requested the distance required for final approach to landing from the crew. The crew responded that they would need 12 nautical miles final for landing. At that time, the call for flaps to be extended to flaps 1 was made in the cockpit, and the flaps began extending. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to continue turning right to a heading of 100, or 100 degrees. While the airplane was turning, the air traffic controller requested information from the flight crew about the nature of their emergency for the first time. So, all this time, they had no clue what was going on. It was at that time the crew informed the air traffic controller that the number three and number four engines were not working, and it appeared that they were having, quote, problems with the flaps, end quote. The airplane turned past the assigned 100 degrees to 120 degrees, so it went past the 100 degrees, which it then maintained 120 degrees. This was not corrected by the air traffic controller at any point in time, either. The aircraft was still moving 260 knots, which is really fast at the time. Oh, so fast. Technically, it's above the legal speed limit below 10,000 feet. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for the approach and instructed them to turn to a heading of 270 to intercept the final approach course. The airplane was at 4,000 feet at the time, while still moving 260 knots. Because of their incorrect heading before, they were also closer to to intercepting the path than they would have been if they had been at 100 degrees. It took about 30 seconds before the airplane began turning to the new heading. There were about 11 nautical miles from the threshold of the runway at the time. It became apparent to the air traffic controller that the airplane was going to overshoot the final approach course, so he gave them new instructions to turn to, to 90 degrees. So in other words, you have a straight line. They're here going this way. They need to come around to do this. They're doing this. So now he has to give them new instructions to come back to the path. 20 seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to 310 degrees to continue to try to get the airplane to intercept the approach course. The air traffic controller also cleared the flight down to 1,500 feet. At 7.35 p.m. in three seconds, the flight crew acknowledged these instructions and continued turning right and descending, but they added, quote, we have a controlling problem, end quote. 25 seconds later, a chilling call was made to the air traffic controller. Quote, going down, 1862, going down, end quote. In the background of that call, the captain could be heard asking for the flaps to be retracted and the gear to be lowered. Later in, the trans- in that same transmission, the air traffic controller could hear what appeared to be the stick shaker sounding on the airplane. The airplane banked severely right and nose down. 
it fell quickly toward the city in the dark of night. 7.35 p.m. and 42 seconds, the airplane crashed squarely into the apex of two conjoined 11-story apartment buildings in the Bijlmermeer suburb of we Amsterdam. We are so sorry. It's Dutch. <laughs> About 13 kilometers east of the airport. The area was quickly on fire, the building and the wreckage, and the section of the building was completely destroyed by the crash. It was leveled completely. Those two parts of the building used to be connected. There and there. They used to touch. They're not. No. Kind of titanic break. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. The airplane was completely destroyed, disintegrated on impact. All four people on board the airplane perished in the crash, as well as 39 people on the ground. The thing is, is that rescuers thought that the death toll would be much higher, and there's still a lot of speculation that more than likely the number was much higher. That being because this building was known for having many people living that had entered the country undocumented and illegally. The true number of perished is not known, but the official number is 43, making this the Netherlands' worst, worst aviation accident in history. However, the number is presumed to be over 200. Jesus. Oh. Also, question, because I caught this and I don't remember this. Yep. Why would they retract the flaps? We will get I to will that. cover that. Okay, thank you. Because I'm like, wait a minute. Wouldn't you want to have them out to have drag? This was also one thing that I was going to talk to you about because Air Disasters never mentioned it. Oh, hell no. It's fine. We'll talk about it later. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm glad that we cover it because I don't remember anything about it. And I'm like, what? Yes. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Netherlands Aviation Safety Board, but they weren't able to examine the wreckage right when they arrived. Rescue and recovery efforts were ongoing, and they weren't allowed in until those efforts had ceased, so they started with what they could. So they started with the air traffic control recordings and found some initial information. They knew for sure that the crew had engine problems on the right side of the plane, an engine fire was reported later on, and they completely lost control when they were inside of the airport. But other than that, the recording didn't really shed much information, and the black boxes were truly necessary to discern what transpired. This turns out to have been a much harder task, though, than most other events we've covered. To mitigate the trauma of seeing the wreckage, the city of Amsterdam ordered that the wreckage be taken to dump sites around the city for sorting, rather than sorting through it on site. So that another- seems a little dumb. Yeah, so in other words, they were going to have to sift through everything from the building and the airplane at several different places to try to figure out. That's so stupid. People already know what happened. Like, just let investigators do their job. I don't know. I don't know. I can only imagine how difficult and frustrating this must have been. So that sucks. But now they also don't know where everything was in the wreckage is also a A big problem. problem. Yeah. It's like, oh, we took this truckload from over here, but we didn't say that it went there or we don't know where anything was. Great. The sorting itself was nightmarish, obviously. Also because there were pieces of the building intermingled, kind of obviously. But apparently some building parts have a tendency to be mistaken for airplane parts, I and mean, vice versa. I mean, if you find a metal pipe, how would you know? So, Or just a piece of scrap metal? Like, this come from the plane or the building? I don't know. Right. <laughs> or is this a window frame, or... No know. idea. Right. So, it's a cluster. While that fiasco was transpiring, investigators were able to interview some witnesses who brought forth some crazy information. Minutes before the crash, they saw two jet engines fall into Lake Huimir, which was along the flight path. Okay, 
Here's where we get into our story. Okay. So, we went to dinner. This was, what, maybe two or three years ago. We went to dinner, and this is right when I was, like, in starting to get into air disasters, and I was watching, like, an entire season in a night. Don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> I don't yeah. have a problem. It's fine. Yeah, that. But I remember we went to dinner, and I looked at Nick, and I'm like, has there ever been a point where engines just fall off aircraft? And he legit said, no, it doesn't really happen. And I went, okay, cool. Then we went home and watched this episode of Air Disasters <laughs> where engines fell off the aircraft. And okay. I looked at Nick and went, you are a f***ing liar. <laughs> Nick was okay. wrong. But literally, this is only I can only think of four times in history that this has ever actually happened. Well, now five, because actually there's the one they added in the so episode. So technically, but anyways, you were a liar four times. Yes, liar. but even the, even the investigator in the episode. Six times. Oh, six. shit. I will talk about it later. Okay, anyways... <laughs> So shots fired. But then when, but even in the episode, the investigator was like, "This just doesn't really happen. Like this is almost unheard of in aviation. It's Which the is, same thing. It's like it this just, just doesn't happen." Super ironic that we talked about it at dinner and then we watched an episode where it happens. Yes, I will, <laughs> I will agree with you there. We literally looked at Nick and went, "You are a liar." Liar. Everyone else is probably also listening and be like, this sounds vaguely familiar of an engine falling off a plane. Yes, it also happened for American Airlines Flight One Ninety One. Yes, correct. That's one of the other Which ones. Which we covered a few months ago. Yes. I will give Nick a slight benefit of, for something that seems like it should fall off probably more than it does, it kind of doesn't happen. Like, how often do you think it should <laughs> <laughs> Like, it never should. But looking at a plane, if someone told me, yeah, when they crash, usually it's because those fell off, I'd be like, I'd buy that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, fair enough. Because but... they look like... They're heavy enough to fall. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, yeah. Did, if you made a mistake, if you cut corners, you know, they just fall. It just happens. You would think. But they don't. There is another incident, the 707. <laughs> so that one's really interesting. We will talk about that one eventually. That one didn't just fall off. It blew up off the airplane. <laughs> it took a third of the wing with it, and the plane still ended. So I can think of five incidents where the engine just straight up fell off the airplane. This is one of them. I can think of five. And all of them are 747s. One of mine is the 707, then there's the DC-10, and then I can think of three 747s. Oh, wait, sorry. One's a DC-10. Sorry, And then I can think of three 747s. Alphabet soup. Four 747s. Okay. So, well, hell, it's time for some more recovery efforts. Divers began searching the lake bottom for two Pratt & Whitney jet engines. This information, though, started a whole rumor mill in the media. It's an Israeli airline. Right. So people immediately go to racist, xenophobic, dumb stuff. Terrorists. There's a lot of other words I was going to say, but we are clean. Maybe they were shot down by a missile, or sabotaged, or they had secret military explosives on board that weren't on the manifest. Commence eye roll. Divers were soon able to recover Engine 4 within hours, and a forensic lab did a test for explosives and found nothing. Because it wasn't an explosion. There's a picture of the map of their circling and where everything fell. Oh, it's a colorful one. It is a colorful one. So let me call out the numbers of what all those numbers mean. So number one is where engines three and four break off. Two are where they land in the lake. Three is when they first made the mayday call. Four is where they reported fire. Five is the pilot reports problems with the flaps. Six is the airplane becomes completely uncontrollable. And then seven is the... Turns out when you don't have engines on a uh, wing, 
you're really unbalanced. As it turns yes. out. If they had lost an engine from each wing, it probably would have been okay. But yeah. because it was all on one wing, that's bad, boo-boo. It's not good. And it's real bad. It's also worth noting that they they would have had no idea that these engines were gone if the witnesses hadn't said anything. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would have been real they unfortunate. Just also very bad. And how long did that take? It was within, like, I think a couple hours that witnesses came forward and then within hours of that no i mean the loop-de-loop the loop-de-loop i don't know oh this didn't take very long at all so they took off at 7 21 and p.m the and engines they, fell off within six minutes and they hit the ground at 7 35 so 14 minutes okay. of the flight basically we always like we say we always talk about it, it seems like a long time but it's really not we've literally long. already yeah, been no. talking longer than this accident took to occur yeah oh that's unfortunate yep so, the loss, or rather, detachment, of the two engines became even more concerning when investigators were able to draw parallels to China Airlines Flight 358, which crashed in December, less than a year prior to this accident, after reporting engine problems four minutes after takeoff, having control problems, and crashing. Yep. That investigation was, as far as I can tell, still in progress, but had determined that the plane had also lost engines three and four. Awkward. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, I didn't know this when reading this part of the report or writing my stuff, but there was also another incident where they actually managed to land, but also lost an engine that just fell. And so then, there's three incidents on a 747. And then there's another relatively recent one. That because, dropped it over Lake Michigan. Yeah, dropped one over Lake Michigan. It was Which a cargo we, flight, took off out of O'Hare. We've talked about it before, right? Yeah, because when they were looking for the missing plane in Lake Michigan... They found the engine, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they found the engine from the 747 They're that like, was missing. They were like, okay, that's where that went. <laughs> Just happened to fall in like the exact same area that they were looking for this airplane. Check out our episode on Northwest... 2501? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. And it's basically unheard of because it was like, well, it didn't fall into a city, which it did take off out of Chicago, so, you know, it could have. It could have. But it didn't. It fell in the, in the lake instead, so nobody really cared. It'll Cargo be... flight, so there was no passengers on board, and it happened over water, so they were like, just, shh, nobody talk about it. Yeah. That's like best case scenario, probably. Yeah. Just falls in the water. Okay, it didn't kill nobody. So this yeah. is an ongoing problem, evidently. Uh, especially on 47s. Does this impact the entire worldwide fleet of over 8,000 747s? Everybody on the ground. So everyone work faster. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's time for some good news. The flight data recorder was found. Yay. It was sent to the NTSB headquarters in... Washington, D.C. Good job. Yep. As it was not in great shape from, you know, crashing into a building. <clears throat> nah, yeah. you don't say. As for the cockpit voice recorder, investigators were never able to find it, and it probably burned to a crisp. Yeah, they're probably lucky they found the FDR. And it was in bad shape. Yeah, so yeah. not finding the CVR, not really all that surprising. Nope. No. Within the next week, divers were able to recover Engine 3 from Lake Hoimir. I think that's how it's pronounced. And at first, it provided more questions than answers. You might recall that the crew had reported an engine fire. Well, there was no evidence of anything. Fire? No soot, no char, nothing. In the water? On the engine. Yeah. Nope. Nope, nothing. None. Nothing that says, oh, there was a fire here. Just floated away. Also, can we kind of talk about how it's very fortunate it fell into a lake? Yeah. And instead not yeah. on a house? Yeah, because they were still over Amsterdam. And, like, not into other stuff. I mean, the plane flew into an apartment complex, so that's not great. 
But but it could have been worse. It, it could have been, been like those engines are very big and heavy, and are still combusting to and, some extent. And they're very big, uh, so it's very fortunate that they fell into a lake and not into something else. Big ball of fire. There was also not even evidence of surging, which potentially could have caused a fire. So there goes that. What else could have separated the engines? The team found a dark streak on the cowling of the right side of engine three. They took samples to test what the streak was made out of. It turned out to have been paint transfer from the spinner on the front of the number four engine. That is the face that I expected from Emily. (laughs) She's like, what? Yeah. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Engine four couldn't have like gone up and hit engine three, right? I mean, you never know. I mean, it's a plane. But what if engine three separated first and then hit engine four? Like all Georgia the Jungle style. (laughs) Almost. I'm glad <laughs> Nick just took me 100% seriously right there. I'm just imagining an engine swinging into another engine by a rope. I mean, hey. <laughs> well, so it turns out it did swing into the other engine, and that's how both engines fell off. There we go. We've solved part of the problem. So that's only one part, though. So what caused engine three to separate in the first place? Investigators began analyzing the pylon, the structure that holds the engine to the wing of the aircraft. There are four fuse pins used to keep the pylon attached to the wing, but none of them have had been recovered thus far. Please refer to the picture on our website for this, but I'll also try to explain their configuration, and it's still not going to be great. Toward the front of the engine is the upper link, which connects the wing and the pylon at a fuse pin. A little further back is the side brace connecting to the two mid-spar fittings side-by-side, connecting to the pylon with fuse pins again side-by-side. And then much further back is the diagonal brace connecting to the aftmost fuse pin. They're kind of in the shape of a cross if you drew lines between them. Yeah. Again, pictures on our website. Please refer to it as I'm a visual learner, so I need things like that. Investigators quickly compiled a list, count them, nine in total of possibilities and began working through them. All but three were eliminated fairly quickly, but I'll go through them just the same. Could the two mid-spar side-by-side fuse pins have failed simultaneously? No. That would take an insane force, and the data from the flight data recorder, which was able to be read out in full eventually, did not show any unusual loading, which would have caused this. Did the diagonal brace or its fuse pin break or separate first? Examination of what they could of this part revealed that all the fractures were in overload and probably happened secondarily. Did a massive static load occur? FDR says no. Let's flash back to a few episodes ago. Did the crew strike something? (laughs) Such as, you could say, a bird. A bird. So, interesting about this. Investigators were able to review the radar data from Schiphol Airport and found that the day in question had an elevated number of... Flocks of geese in Birds. the area. Birds. Were they Canada geese? I don't know. Oh. It just says geese. I just thought it would be ironic if they were Canada geese. I don't know. Israeli geese, obviously. <laughs> they were Israeli geese. They were uh, Dutch geese. Dutch geese. How dare you. Dutch geese. However, upon shining UV lights in the two recovered engines, investigators were able to eliminate this possibility as no biological evidence was present, since it would have glowed. Nope, they did not strike There's birds. There's no birds in the engine. No glue, no geese. Also, it is worth noting at this point that they lost the engines at about 6,500 feet. 
and the birds never went above 5,000, so yeah, that also is just kind of logical. So, did the engine seize and stop rotating? First of all, I'm not sure how this would cause the engine to fall off, but also no, it didn't happen as the fan showed rotational damage. So the engines were running. Yes. It spasmed and then would fall. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know why that was considered a possibility, but whatever. They had, they had to test all their theories. Yes. Did the side brace above the side-by-side fuse pins fail? No, the side brace was found and it also failed in overload. Okay, those were pretty quick. Now for the last three scenarios. Did the upper link slash pin fail first? This one is more difficult because it wasn't actually found, but some of the surrounding bits showed bending and torsion failure, which only would have occurred in that manner if something else failed first. So no. So no. Now we are left with the last two scenarios. Did one of the two side-by-side pins fail first? Most of the rest of this analysis was done using deduction, logic, some stress analysis, and miraculously some parts were recovered. Now... This is where I really want you guys to look at the pictures and listen carefully because this is a weird description. The inboard mid-spar fitting as well as its right lug were recovered. For reference, each of these two mid-spar fittings has two lugs, one right and one left. Got it. The lug showed a non-fatigue fracture in tension and a little bit of bending. For this particular kind of break to occur, the left side of this fitting would have had to shear, meaning the inboard mid-spar fuse pin most likely failed first. So there's a pin in that assembly, and that's what they determined failed first. So the one that's highlighted in black is the one that they recovered. So they determined that this break occurred first, then caused that break to occur. So then through sequencing analysis, the outboard mid-spar fitting would have failed right side first, then left side as the engine rotated outward as it broke. There's a diagram showing the sequence on the website in case you're curious. The scenario that investigators determined was most likely was, quote, one, a fracture initiated by a fatigue crack of the sheer face of the inboard mid-spar fuse pin. This was followed by two, a sequential fracture of the outboard lug of the inboard mid-spar fitting. Then three, the outboard shear face. Finally, four, the inboard shear face of the outboard mid-spar fuse pin. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just look at the picture, no. friends. In English, please. <laughs> the subsequent pylon engine separation occurred during the flight out of Schiphol Airport at 6,500 feet and at an indicated airspeed of 267 knots. End quote. So, look at the picture. Basically, what happened is the pin fractured, then the other fractured, and then the engine swung, and then it fell off, and then the other one... And then it hit Same engine thing. four. And then the engine four fell off. So it did swing. It swung. Yeah. Well, yeah. it kind of makes sense when you look at it, that. Because yeah. so if when this that failed broke, first, then the front would have spun and then broken broke, that. And then it would have came off and hit the fourth, the number four engine. And that caused probably, you know, pins to break in there. And then that one came off. It would, that would have been a quick failure. Engine 4 would have just ripped right off. Yeah. It's like when you get a very heavy engine hit another engine... When you're going so fast, yeah. Yeah. So, now I know some of you have probably seen the Air Disasters episode, and what I just described is not what happened in the episode. I want to clear that up real quick because they way oversimplified what actually happened. One of the fuse pins was recovered, and very luckily at that, I will say. But it was not the one that broke first. It was the outboard mid-spar fuse pin. Investigators found a 4 millimeter 
fatigue crack in the pin that had started at multiple points due to poor quality machining groups. The air disaster episode says that this is what caused the separation of the engine, and that simply isn't what the report says. Yes, there was a fatigue crack, but it wasn't that fatigue crack that caused the separation sequence, as the first failure was most likely on the inboard mid-spar attachment, not the outboard. Also, that like the diagram that we're looking at, by mm-hmm. the way, it's very simply like you see exactly where they would crack, and it would make sense that because the first two failed, then the other two would fail because it swung, and it, mm-hmm. it makes sense. But just saying it's fatigue is like, okay, that's like a blanket statement. Yeah, so, I mean, it is fatigue. Just There not, were fatigue fractures. It's not the part that they found. It happens, but that's not really what happened. So, ultimately, what the crack they did find provided was the basis for the scenario that did happen. Since there was a f- fatigue crack on the outboard fuse pin, there was probably one on the inboard fuse pin, and that's what failed. Inboard first, then outboard not the other way around. The safety board then dove into how exactly the 747 was certified if this managed to happen. Yeah. Multiple times. Not once, not twice, but three times in 15 months. Right. I was going to say, well, and the biggest, the biggest factor to back them up and the reason they didn't have to spend a whole lot of time, like trying to find the other pin to prove it is because having seen the fatigue fracture on the one they had also just matched the other two airplanes they had to deal with already. Yeah. It turns out that the fatigue analysis that was performed during the certification was not sufficient, and no full-scale testing had been required during the certification process. Well, that's a boo-boo. Boeing hadn't performed any structural testing of the pylon to characterize its static strength, fatigue, and fail-safe features in case of pylon separation, saying that since it was the exact same one as the 707, it was reliable. And the FAA just accepted that. And declared it airworthy. Excuse me? No. Yeah. No. Yes. Especially since, I don't know, did they use the same engines on the 707 as the 747? No. I don't know. So then, no. why the hell would you be like, yeah, that makes sense? No! <laughs> they figured that the weights were similar enough that they were like, yeah, I can hold that. No. That's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. <laughs> They literally have to weigh all the big bags and all the bags. But this is fine. We can just assume they're the same. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, that makes sense. Assumptions. Never assume. Assumptions are where dangers obviously (laughs) occur. Engines just fall off aircraft. Don't cut corners. Miranda will be mad at you later. Miranda got way more agitated about this than I thought she would. I didn't realize that they certified it without making sure that they could actually hold the damn engines on the wing. Okay, so all of this answers a series of events going through the 360-degree turn. But the crew had, I mean, like, good enough control of the plane thus far, so why did they lose control at the last second? Why did Nick's ominous comment make sense? This question is actually fairly easy to guess at, but was confirmed by the flight data that came back on the FDR, as well as more wreckage that was found by the lake, not in the lake. Emily, do you remember what happened right before they lost control? What was Nick's ominous comment about? That they said they were going down? There's that, but right after that. <laughs> oh. During that call, okay. what did the air traffic controller <gasps> hear? Oh! oh! The stick shift. The, the flaps. Or the that. flaps retract. And then, and then they said they'd get to it, and this is the getting This to. is me getting to it. <laughs> yes. So they had just extended flaps to flaps two. 
when they lost control. Now, or so they thought. You might recall that there were hydraulic problems after the engine loss. That's because when engine three came off, it damaged the leading edge of the wing, you know, where hydraulic lines are. <laughs> Fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> and it left those sections of the leading edge of the flaps and the wing by the lake, making the flaps on that side... Unusable? Useless. Yep. Then why would you bother retracting? They didn't know. So, uh. so part of the whole sequence of this they couldn't look at the wing they can't yeah, see they it can't from the no, that, that that makes sense so so the thing is is they had put in they heard the call through the air traffic controller recordings that the captain requested flaps one so they know they had put flaps one out but then they know from the fdr that eventually they put out flaps two and that was just before they lost control that was when they declared mayday mayday going down and the reason for that is because when they put out flaps too, they suddenly had a massive imbalance in aerodynamics. Because only the left side flaps extended. So the Which airplane... is why they retracted them, because they didn't have flaps so on the other side. So the captain did make the right call, and as soon as he realized the airplane was unflyable once the flaps were put out, he called to have them retracted, which was heard on the air traffic control thing, which I thought was really interesting because that was never called out in the episode. No, they don't talk about that in the Air Disasters episode. They claim that nothing was of interest on the ATC recordings, but that would have been an enormous red flag to me. Why was he retracting the flaps but calling exactly. for the gear to go down? And he, the stick shaker was heard because the right wing stalled. Well, yeah. Yep. More lift on one wing than the other. Yeah. So there you go. Happen. So, hypothetically speaking, this did come up in the episode. How could they possibly have landed this if they had known the extent of the damage? What they would have had to do was to land with no flaps. Yeah. At more than 350 miles an hour. Ooh. More than twice their normal landing speed, and they still likely would have overrun the runway and died anyway. Oh, there's 100%. Yeah. You're going too fast. There's no way. You could slow down in time. There's, there's still no a, way. still a chance that they could have survived it after overrunning the runway because it's such a big airplane but and they're up high do we know what's at the end of the runway i don't know what's at the end of the runway Uh, most of the runways at skeeple are surrounded by marshy grass so so at least it's not like well at least they'd run into like marsh and not it would slow down the plane and not uh, an apartment building yeah right or you know Road. But, I mean, that's all kind of a moot point because... They crashed into an apartment building? Well, and yeah. they had no way of knowing the extent of the damage. No. They had no way of knowing that the flaps weren't retracting on... Or weren't extending on the right so, side. So, question. And yes. I don't know if it covered it in the episode. I don't know if you cover this and maybe you don't. But I think it's a good question nonetheless. The flight engineer, did he ever see anything that said that they didn't have anything on the left side? On at the all? left side? On the right side. Oh, on the right side. Sorry. So... He- it is assumed that he saw that there was no hydraulics in systems three and four, which were mostly on the right side. And But nothing for the engines? Nothing. I mean, he, he noted that they were not working, most oh, likely. That there was no power, and there ultimately was a probably a fire warning. But we'll never know because there was no CV, CVR. Oh, that's true. And his true. job would be entirely tracked by the CVR. He doesn't have any controls over anything. He yeah. just monitors. Well, because that would be that would be his job, right? Like yeah. he, those of you who 
who are just joining us or who don't understand what flight engineers were for. It's this really was before for, computers monitored your right. stuff. So it, he, they're monitoring like hydraulics and engine power and things like that. They don't have control over anything, but they're to tell the first officer and the captain, you know, oh, hey, we're going down on engine one or whatever like they would have the ability to check all that stuff so a decent chunk of the way nick narrated what happened in the cockpit is in large part assumed because there's no cvr right yeah but it's also safe to say the flight engineer probably said engines three and four are out hydraulic systems three and four are out there's a fire warning like yeah yeah. you, you might have caught that i said that it's assumed that the captain took over flying at one point the only reason they actually make that assumption is because Eventually, the, the first, first officer, officer is making the radio, radio calls, calls and the and he's and the, calling stuff. And you can hear the captain asking for right. certain things. Which so also, it's assumed that he took over control. Which also means that some poor soul who knew both of them had to go in and identify the ATC recordings. Yes, that is true. That's Which horrible. is really crappy. Yeah. And we gloss over that a large chunk of the time. But it's true. It's horrible. All right. On that lovely note. Shall we take a break? We're going to take a break break. And then we're going to come back, and guess who gets to do all the findings and recommendations? It's your girl. <laughs> so come back. It'll be fun. Woo! We back. Welcome back to the Miranda Show, where I cover findings and probable cause and recommendations and things. Yeah. Doesn't happen very often, but guess what? You get it today. Emphasis on the things, because there's things. There is things in this report. There are things. <laughs> is things. I like grammar. <laughs> Grammar's Ironically. You remember how I said I don't teach English? Ironicism? Was that what it was? Ironicism? Yep. yep. Oh. All right. So, fine. I'm going to go over findings and probable cause. Then we'll get into some stuff that happened before the report came out. And then we'll go over recommendations. Cool. So, I'm going to skip the first two findings because it was like, the airplane was inspected and maintained by the blah, 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 and the flight crew was certified by the blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you guys already know all that stuff. I don't need to tell you that. They found that at an altitude of about 6,500 feet, the number three pylon failed. This pylon and number three engine separated from the right wing. The number three engine struck the number four engine, causing the number four pylon and engine to separate from the wing. So it swung, hit the fourth uh, number four engine, and the engine, both engines fell off. The leading edge flaps, and a portion of the fixed leading edge of the wing back to the front spar were exclusively damaged. The number three and number four hydraulic systems were completely, and the pneumatic system was partially disabled. It's saying that number three and number four hydraulic systems were completely, and the pneumatic system was partially disabled. disabled. Okay, I see. It's, yeah. It sounded makes weird, too, sense. as I was reading it, but the hydraulic systems weren't working. The pneumatic system was partially disabled. Okay. The flight crew reported a fire on the number three engine to ATC. Given the system logic, a fire warning may have been the result of a double fault indication of the system. I didn't cover that. It's basically they thought there was an engine fire because there was a fault in the system. Because the engine fell off. Right. I also didn't mention anything about the fact that there were three issues written up with the airplane when they got to Amsterdam. Radios weren't working. Speed wouldn't hold correctly. And generator on number three, the electric generator on engine number three, was malfunctioning. 
Which could have been a warning sign that things were separating. A little oh. bit. Well. But I didn't really talk about that because it was almost glanced over in the report. Yeah, too. I mean, I, th- I feel like we covered it pretty well. Yeah. Due to the limited field of view from the cockpit to the wing area, the flight crew was not able to observe the separation of the number three engine nor the damage to the wing. So they had no idea this was happening. And that's not their fault. That's just the way the airplane is. It's not the only airplane like that either. No. 90% of the time, you can't see the wing from the cockpit. Mm. I wouldn't say 90% of the time, but a lot of the time, yes. Especially on these big double-decker planes. It's harder to see the engines for sure on well, those it's, airplanes. Well, they're just farther back, and especially with yeah. double-deckers, it's like you're higher up than the wing is. So You might recall on Qantas Flight 32 that one of the crew members had to go back into the cabin to see that the engine was... um Gone. Well, not gone, but it blown was, up. Yeah. Not working. <laughs> and flames were spewing out. And yeah. fuel. Yeah. Yeah. That was nice. that one performance and controllability were severely limited and the airplane was marginally flyable so they were able to kind of sort of fly it and if they hadn't actually tried to extend extend the flaps it probably would have been okay but because they did that the right wing stalled and all this stuff was bad Current standard industry training requirements and procedures do not cover complex emergencies like encountered by the flight. That's a way of saying that this wasn't the crew's fault. That well, they couldn't see the engines, but they also had no training on how to conquer something like this. Yeah, they pretty much determined that unfortunately it was a mechanical failure that pretty much doomed that crew. I mean, that was just what it was. There was no getting out of that situation. There, they, there was no way. They did everything really honestly very well, actually. All things considered. All things considered. But they were also a very, very experienced crew. So yeah. there's a reason they were doing everything extremely well. And they were handling the situation to the best of their abilities. It's just, unfortunately, the situation was pretty much out of their control. Well, quite literally. Like you said, even if they hadn't done the flaps, the land was... They near prob- impossible yeah, to because survive. Yeah. It was so fast. fast. Yeah. Well, yeah, but even with a full heavy airplane. I mean, you're talking about really heavy airplane. Even if they could have been like, "Oh, look, our engine just yeeted itself into the other one and is <laughs> gone now," they couldn't have. They would have been like, "Cool, we can't use flaps." That well, would not. And even if they were able to land and they overran the runway, there was no way to know that the other two engines wouldn't have exploded from impact. I mean, you don't know. And they have so much fuel on board. And you have yes. to be able to land a 47 properly because it's a double-decker and all this stuff. Like, well, and half your hydraulics are out, and so... And so, it, it's a giant mess. Like, the there's no way to know if they actually could have survived the landing if they did land anyway. I think one of the findings is they probably couldn't have done it. Yeah. Like, I found that out, yeah. <laughs> all right. After declaring an in-flight emergency, the flight crew decided to return to the Gipple Airport immediately and land on runway 27, although runway 06 was in use for landing. Which, in an emergency, you can choose whatever. Do whatever you need to do. Literally, you tell the air traffic control, hey, I can pretty much do this, and they'll let you do pretty much whatever. Emergencies take priority (laughs) of runways, so. What's Miranda's phrase? You do you, boo boo. Yeah, you do you, boo boo. You do, <laughs> yeah, you. Do you. You, you, figure do you. It, you figure it out, and you don't hurt other people. That's basically how that goes. 
Because the airplane became too high and too close to the airport to accomplish a straight-in landing, the flight crew was vectored through an approximate 360-degree pattern of descending turns to intercept the final approach course, which it just wouldn't have worked, really, if you think about it, because they had no control over the right side. So I mean, they were able to do the 360. They could do a 360, but I'm not sure if it would have helped them land at all. They had to do really wide the first time they went around. Yeah, so. but it helped them lose altitude. Yeah, well, and it, will probably, it would help with speed, too. Cause not I, enough. Well, no, to be fair. But the more loops you do, the less speed you'll have by the time you get down. They just didn't have enough time they it didn't work during the vectoring to the final approach the flight crew stated to air traffic control that they were experiencing problems with the aircraft's flaps shortly before intercepting the final approach they reported controlling problems maybe because they were lost two engines and part of the flaps on that side turns out during preparation for final approach speed reduction, it made the airplane exceed the limits of its remaining control capability. The airplane crashed into an apartment complex. Exchange of information between LL 1862 and ATC was not always adequate, obviously, because, like, ATC didn't realize what was going on until way far after they said that they had an emergency. Yeah. And it, the communication between ATC and the flight could have been better. Yes. The effectiveness of the fused pylon concept in protecting the wing structure and fuel tanks against the consequences of pylon overloads was based on the history of the similar fuse pin design in the Boeing 707. That doesn't mean you don't recertify them. That doesn't mean you don't make sure it can actually take it. Friendos... Yeah. Bigger aircraft, bigger engines, you have to make sure the certifications are proper. Or guess what? Stuff falls off the aircraft and we have a problem, don't we? Yes. Turns out. Now, and people die. Now, to and be- people die. Thank you. <laughs> to be fair. There's a to be fair here? The 747 had been around for the better part of 25 years okay, at this point. Okay, listen. Then how did all of this happen in 15 Well, months? because at this point, if you think about it, the older stuff gets, the less reliable it is. Which so is, would they have known immediately? really happening. Maybe not. But you should still make sure it's certified. Now, if it had passed certification, that's a different story. But they didn't even certify it. They just assumed that's the bad part. It was already technically a certified part for a different airplane. So why but, recertify? But it's not it's, the same. It's a different airplane. airplane. Right. Not but the, the same part, airplane, not the same engine. The parts are certified already. I don't care. It's listen, <laughs> listen. I realize why. And I realize this didn't happen until several years, but when it happens within fifteen months, right. three accidents, hello, there's a yes. problem. Yes, there is, but this problem took an extremely long time to figure out. Yeah, because it's a fatigue fracture. Right, that exactly. Takes time. And a fatigue fracture that takes a long time. Because this is a, what is it? The There's the low and the high. Oh, the low cycle versus high cycle? Low cycle versus high cycle. This is a high cycle fatigue. Yes, but I don't think it propagated over that many flight cycles. At some point, they figured out how many flight cycles it took. And I can't find it. I it's have, in the report. It's somewhere in the report. You guys go look at it. The argument know. is probably best practices would be to certify it again. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm assuming now they do, especially after the stuff that happened with the Max and what all that What did we say stuff. about assuming? I don't assume anything anymore about That's the industry. Well, <laughs> this, yes, true. 
But also, I mean, you're talking about... Yes, there's a lot of things have changed since then. But also, this is a much larger engine. Yes. On a bigger airplane. On a bigger airplane with different thrust capabilities. This is is a whole lot of things that, yes, this should have been recertified. Did it it work for a long time? Yes. Did it stop working? Yes. So there's a problem. What year was this? 92. Yeah. The China Airlines one happened in 91. Now... I, from my understanding of the industry, now things get recertified if it's a different plane altogether, but if it's the same like series of one plane, not everything gets recertified. For well, example, the 737 series. Right. They've been basically just tacking on. Instead of recertifying the airplane, they've been tacking on. And just getting the add-on certified instead of recertifying the entire airplane. Well, right. And it's not creating of... a new airplane certificate. It is creating a supplemental Well, and yeah. we're, we're kind of seeing the problem with that with what happened with the MAX, right? And yeah. we're not going to get super into this. We've already said as soon as we get a report, we can do episodes on those. But By the way, I saw an update. It should be coming out this year. Okay. So good to know. So Someday. you can start recommending them after the Ethiopian crash gets a report. But my point is, is sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The thing with the 37 is 37s are relatively the same in size, right? Relatively same size, relatively same size engine, all that. Okay, cool. So 07 and 47, two different airplanes. Yes. N- entirely. So that is what bothers me, is that they're two different airplanes, but you're assuming that one... The one certification is applicable to the other. Which is not true. I agree. Don't get me wrong. I agree. So there. And clearly they proved this because there's problems on three aircraft within 15 months. Yeah, that's a problem. Moving on. Sorry, that was a long sidestep for that. But I feel like we just need to talk about it because that's a huge problem for me. Gotta talk about it. Okay. Certification of the Boeing 747 pylon included a fail-safe analysis of the nacelle. And pylon concept. At that time, this analysis, however, did not address the specific fail-safe requirement assuming a fatigue failure or partial failure of a single structural element, which just means they didn't take into account if one of them fails, what happens to the rest of them. Yes. So another fault in the certification system. Exactly. A then state-of-the-art fatigue analysis of the pylon structure was made to establish the maintaining requirements. In real life, this did not turn out to be sufficiently reliable. From August 1979, on a large number of SBs Service and, bulletins. and ADs, airworthiness directives, were issued addressing numerous fatigue problems in the pylon structure, including fused pins, lugs, and fittings. There were already documents out. About this. Like, hey, this could potentially be a problem. Maybe you should look into this. So that being said, when it says a then state-of-the-art fatigue analysis, this is at a time in mechanical engineering where fatigue analysis was developing, and it still is to some extent today, but they didn't have finite element analysis the way that they do today. That is the system where you can break a complex part down into tiny little mathematically simple bits and have a computer run an analysis that didn't exist here yeah right so during the certification they couldn't predict the same way that we can today right inspection and analysis performed by specialists on recovered vital parts of the pylon construction revealed severe damage due to fatigue thank you thank you 
We've covered it multiple times. Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast, <laughs> where we talk about fatigue fractures. I am fatigued. Oh, wait. <laughs> Different. I Sorry. am fatigued on the fatigue. So this did come up in conversation in my life recently regarding fatigue. This is a concept that usually isn't taught to mechanical engineers, probably until grad level courses. And most of you guys know how to identify a fatigue fracture from a picture now. So I just want to give you all congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can do more than bachelor's level mechanical engineers in a lot of parts of the country. So good to job. Be, to be fair, it's a fairly simple idea if, yeah, when you think but about it. I only covered it in a grad level course with the yak. The yak man. He's coming back. Eventually. Expect him in September as far as we know. That may change. Which is finally creeping up a little bit. No firm conclusion could be drawn whether or not the fatigue crack in the outboard mid-spar fuse pen was detectable at the last ultrasonic inspection. So, so I didn't talk about this. There, there was a dispute. The... A bunch of different entities said that LL should have been able to detect the fatigue crack using ultrasonic inspection techniques. And LL was like, no, not necessarily. And then there was this huge bickering. So pretty much everyone just says, we don't know. To be fair, that is true. Sometimes you can't tell a fatigue fracture at the last ultrasonic inspection, and then it causes failure, but they didn't see it during the last inspection. And then this had already been, so this had been 257 flight cycles since the last inspection, and a crack can grow in that time. Yes, and we're also talking about late 1980s, early 1990s. They didn't have as good of equipment as we do now. So it's hard to say, and so they basically just didn't say. Right. But I would agree with LL. It could have not been there, and they wouldn't have been able to see it. Who knows? Everything's clear in 2020 hindsight. After analyzing the possibilities, it is assumed, should not assume. But that's as close as they can do. Uh, okay. That the separation was initiated by a fatigue crack in the inboard shear face of the fuse pin in the inboard mid-spar fitting. Look, Look at, at the, the diagram. Yeah. Please. <laughs> it says one, two, three, four. That's all you need to know. That's okay. the sequence. Okay, last finding. Over a period of 15 months, three pylons have failed in flight. We already talked about this. Resulting in two fatal and one serious accident. The original type designed together with the continuous airworthiness measures and associated inspection system did not guarantee the minimum required level of safety of the Boeing 747. So basically, it could potentially not be safe, and they just didn't do anything about it till like, after this happened. Yep. So I'm going to read the probable cause, and then we're going to go back a little bit and talk about what happened before this report came out. So probable cause, as always, from the report. The design and certification of the Boeing 747 pylon was found to be inadequate to provide the required level of safety. Furthermore, the system to ensure structural integrity by inspection failed. This ultimately caused probably initiated by fatigue in the inboard mid-spar fuse pin, the number three pylon, and the engine to separate from the wing in such a way that the number four pylon and engine were torn off. Part of the leading edge of the wing was damaged and the use of several systems was lost or limited. This subsequently left the flight crew with a very limited control of the airplane. Because of the marginal controllability, a safe landing became highly improbable, if not virtually impossible. There you go. 
There you go. You must construct additional pylons. Or at least find a different system that works for the 747. Okay, so I'm going to read the actions taken since the accident. And I'm just going to read this page from the report. They summed it up real well. They talked about it real well. And so there wasn't really a reason for me to take notes on it. So I'm going to just read it. You're welcome in advance for my poor pronunciation of words. When it became evident that also the, quote, bulkhead style, end quote, fuse pin was not only prone to corrosion, but also cracked under service conditions, Boeing decided in November of 1992 to develop a new design of the fuse pin, taking into account the following design objectives. For the record, this is a month after the crash. Yes. Number one, static strength should be increased in such a level that the design loads for abnormal flight conditions could be met without failure of the fuse pin. However, in case of wheels up landing, the wing should not be damaged in order to prevent fuel spillage. So they needed it to be strong enough such that if something weird happened in flight, like one of the fuse pins broke, like the entire thing wouldn't fall off. Right. But also... If they were to land on the ground without landing gear, that the engine would come off without rupturing the fuel tank. Right. Because that calls a big boom boom. And we don't it's like a, big boom that's boom. That's a boom. really specific set of conditions for design. Yes. Which is probably good, right? Like, you want the more specific, the, the better the safety is, correct? But me thinking about it as an engineer, I'm like, that sounds <laughs> awful. Complicated as <laughs> hell. Yeah. That I also get. Okay, number two, the fatigue life and crack growth life should be increased to such a value that fatigue cracking should not occur throughout the life of the airplane and inspection intervals should be sufficiently long. So this is talking about the mechanical characteristics of the material itself. Making sure it's durable. Making sure it's not going to crack over the... I don't know, what, 30, 35 years sometimes that these planes are in service? Or Sometimes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, they can. Rarely, but they can. Number three. The new fuse pin should not be prone to any corrosion in order to fulfill the fatigue life objective. So making sure that the material that the fuse pin's made out of is not going to crack in 25 years or whatever. Or corrode from atmospheric elements. Right. Which is just bad on an airplane because that's all they encounter. All the time. But this is also kind of, I say this very loosely, this is also kind of in the age where they're developing more materials with better corrosive, or anti-corrosive properties, rather. So, yeah. And number four, the manufacturing process should be easy to control and not result in, for example, tooling marts, which could initiate fatigue cracking. Which is what happened here. Right. So, they did find poor quality manufacturing on the one fuse pin that they found, which is where the fatigue crack started because there was like sharp edges, which is a stress concentration, which leads to a crack, which then propagates. Look at all of this that I'm bringing back. Welcome back to the fatigue podcast. (laughs) Yeah. We've talked about this numerous times, starting with episode seven with China Airlines, right? We've talked about this so many times. I can't even count the amount of times. So one of the things that engineers really have to think about when they're designing parts is they have to think about how easy it is to manufacture because if it's difficult to manufacture, it's also easy to make a mistake. Right. Because the easier the manufacturer, the easier it is on them. But 
then it's easier to get stress concentrations and things like that. If it's difficult to manufacture. Right. Based on the above listed design requirements, Boeing developed a stainless steel fuse pin with a considerably improved fatigue and crack growth life. Furthermore, the static strength and fatigue and crack growth analysis will be supported by tests. When the inboard mid-spar fitting of the China Airlines Boeing 747 was recovered, it became evident that both lugs had failed due to fatigue and after assessing the damage to the wing leading edge of the Evergreen Boeing 747 caused by the separation of the number 2 engine, Boeing decided that the Boeing 747 should meet the fail-safe requirements with respect to pile-on to wing attachment. So, they mentioned that they specifically designed a stainless steel fuse pin. Prior to this, the steel that was used was not stainless. It was the 4330M steel, which stainless steel is has a lot of anti-corrosive properties because it contains chromium. That's right. what makes it stainless. Any other steel that is not stainless is prone to corrosion. Right. Whether it be, like... Humidity, the salt in the air, which happens at sea level, all of these things, which I think Tel Aviv is pretty near sea level. Yes, actually, some parts of Israel are well below sea level. So, when you have that much salt and water and humidity and all that, that breaks down metal. Yeah, it so oxidizes it. Having something that doesn't corrode, like stainless steel, is better. Which I think they were trying, they were starting to figure out around this point, right? Don't double check my history on that because no one knows like i did not take in a history of engineering class so i could i might just be totally pulling this out my butt but also but also i mean the the facts you say around it are correct stainless steel is less corrosive than non-stainless and so they upgraded to stainless steel i will get off my me soapbox maybe As a consequence, Boeing reassessed the current pylon design in order to meet the fail-safe requirements. The hardware fix currently proposed by Boeing will add an additional link to the mid-spar mounting in order to meet the fail-safe requirements. Extensive local redesign of the pylon structure should eliminate most of the currently effective inspections. The diagonal brace and upper link will be replaced by designs with a higher load carrying capacity. Those are the two links in front of and behind the mid-spar fitting that failed. The board is of the opinion that 1. A full-scale test should be carried out for the redesigned pylon to qualify static, fatigue, and fail-safe characteristics. 2. An extensive flight load measurement diagram involving revenue flights should be accomplished in order to gain a better knowledge of the actual loads of the pylon structure. So they specifically bring up doing this on a revenue flight because this was not a revenue flight and revenue flights could have additional loading in excess of a cargo flight. Well, because you have people on board. Yep. So People and their cargo. And then a couple more uh, little paragraphs on this. Boeing intended modification program will probably start somewhere in the second quarter of 1994 and will require somewhere between 12 and 17 days downtime and about 10,000 man hours per airplane. Oof. Which Total- is a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Total time to modify all Boeing 747 airplanes will be five to seven years. Which happened. They really did do this, though. Boeing... 
took charge and they made it happen. Well, and uh, you you notice no other engines fell off 747s. Yeah. You'll notice that it, it is, actually worked. It did work. Maybe if they had done this to begin with, this wouldn't have been a problem. Brilliant. Just saying. Turns out. In the interim, safety of the fleet of not yet modified airplanes will be guaranteed by one new stainless steel fuse pins. So Good job. Replacing the fuse pins. Two, adapted inspection program for the lugs, so make it, rechecking the lugs, making sure that they're okay. And three, use of newly developed ultrasonic sensor able to detect smaller cracks. So as we said, ultrasonic technology advanced. And they decided to take advantage of this by actually using new ultrasonic technology to find cracks. Yeah. Smaller but, cracks. There you go. So we went from, I don't know if we could tell or not, to, here, now you can tell. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. It doesn't matter if you could or not, now you can. Don't mess it up. Okay, so now on to recommendations. There's only 14 of these, which I was like, yay, they're nice and short. That's not too bad. And they're relatively, like, they're not super wordy. So there you and, go. And some of them, as we just discussed, already happened. So Right. They took care of that before this report even went out. But they still had to officially make the recommendation to be like, we... Just in case you didn't know, here you... Now you know. We said if that. you don't, don't know, know, now you know. know. So, investigators recommended that. Redesign of the Boeing 747 pylon structure, including attachment to engine and wing, all SBs... Service bulletins. And 80s. Airworthiness directives. Should be terminated after the redesign. Which they did that. They did that. They recommended the redesign program for the pylon should include a full-scale fatigue and fail-safe test. They did that. As far as I know, they did that. They recommended a large-scale in-fleet-wide fatigue load measurement program should be carried out, both on-wing, fuselage, and fin-mounted engines, in order to establish more realistic load spectra for fatigue evaluations. Using the actual plane that you're certifying parts on, instead of a different plane entirely, maybe. Brilliant! Nah. Just an idea. It still pisses me off. I don't know why that pisses me off so much. You got way more irritated than this, I, I thought you would It's really, really annoying to me that they're like, let's just use the 707 stuff. Why? Why? Different airplane. <laughs> okay. Because it's easier. Cut Sorry, corners. hold on. That's exactly why. They recommended to review present methods of controlling structural integrity, such as non-destructive inspection techniques and airworthiness directive requirements in the current design of the Boeing 747 pylon assembly. That makes a sense. That make a sense. Make a sense. Make a sense. They recommended if a structural design concept is used and the basis for the certification of another design, in-service safety problems for both designs should be cross-referenced. Thank you. There you go. This also means that this could have happened on a 707. Not that really anyone flies them anymore, but... And they didn't really even fly them at this point either. No, they did. But it was more likely to happen on a 747. But it had the potential to happen on a 707. It did. But it would be more... Because the engines are lighter and the airplane is lighter. Yes, but this is all... It's just saying that there's a potential and they should look at that. Yes. Agreed. The very last 707 passenger airplane retired a handful of years ago. It's not a problem really anymore. But it could have been. It could have been. Could have been. But it People wasn't. People could have died. It wasn't. People could have died, but they didn't. There but they go. also did. But they also did. <laughs> <laughs> they recommended to evaluate 
and where necessary, improve the training and knowledge of flight crews concerning factors affecting aircraft control when flying in asymmetric conditions, such as with one or more engines inoperative, including 1. Advantages and disadvantages of the direction of turn, 2. Limitation of bank, and 3. Use of thrust in order to maintain controllability. Which I feel like is just a training thing, right? Because we talked about very first episode, UA-232, and they were able to figure out that the hydraulics caused a problem, so they were able to use they, engine power. Well, they were able to use asymmetry to their advantage. Well, and quite frankly, this crew, I don't think there was any problems with that. I'd argue no. there wasn't because no. he did everything right. He just didn't know. But, but they were they highlighting. Knew. They were yes. highlighting that yes, this crew did everything correctly, but another crew might not have. Yes. So we need to train everybody in case or to to that know the fair. signs, right? So and what and how to use it to your advantage or disadvantage. Right. So when you think that there's, you know, maybe one of them, I don't know, to be fair, I don't know how accessible windows in the back are on a on a cargo Boeing flight? cargo flight. I not, don't know. There's not. Uh, <laughs> and if there's not, then there's nothing they really could have done. But having like on Qantas 32, having someone go back and see what's wrong is better than not being able to see anything at all. Yes. Which, if you can't see out the windows on a cargo flight, like, that's not their fault. There's nothing they could have done then at all, whatsoever. So, I mean, take it as you will, but just so that crew know, this could be a potential problem if these things occur. Which yes. is true. Here's the airplane we're talking about specifically. Yeah. There's no windows. windows. No, no windows. <laughs> Zero windows. The boxes want to look. Well, then, too bad for the boxes. They got, yeah. They got smiley faces They're going to be them. in the dark. So, really, on a cargo flight, then they're non-existent. Then there's no way for them to know. Yes, so, but understanding the signs. More, more of the point is, okay, you have asymmetric power. How are you going to fly this? Yes, and if if this is the case, how are you going to land safely? You know? Because mm-hmm. I feel like they had plenty of altitude to fig some, figure something out if they had known the problem. Anyway, moving on. They recommend to evaluate and, where necessary, improve the training and knowledge of flight crews in cockpit resource management. Hey, Woo! came up again. Crew we have a t-shirt. Look it up. In order to prepare them for multiple systems failures, conflicting checklist requirements, and other beyond abnormal situations. So working as a team, they couldn't really tell on this flight because there was no cockpit voice recorder. So, But it's just re-emphasizing the point. Yeah. CRM is huge, right? It's huge everywhere. Just make sure you're talking with your teammates. Make sure you're working as a team, right? It's super important. They recommend to expand the information on in-flight emergencies and appropriate guidance material to include advice how to ensure that pilots and air traffic controllers are aware of the importance to exchange information in case of in-flight emergencies. The use of standard phraseology should be emphasized. So I've listened to a couple of incidents where emergencies were declared. And air traffic control will usually say something along the lines of declare the nature of your emergency. Yeah. Or you should at least let them know. state the nature of your emergency. Yeah. Yeah. Let them know what's going on. Let them know what the problem is. And it's one of the first contacts after someone says mayday, 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 pan, 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 whatever. Yeah. It's usually state the nature of your emergency. So 
it's very important that ATC knows what's happening because then they can help you in the appropriate way. Did the pilots 100% know what was going on? No, but they also didn't tell ATC right when they figured out there was a problem. It was lucky in this circumstance that air traffic control had them going in all right-hand turns because when you're missing two engines on one side, that's fairly easy to do. Well, and they they had the proper engines to make right turns. Now, if if air traffic control had commanded them to make left turns, it would have been a much worse time. It would have been probably even worse than it actually was. They probably would have said, no, we can't do that. Also, the engines might have fallen into houses or into a city or who knows. Because they were doing all right turns, it was fortunate that the engines fell into a lake. Yes. As we talked about before. So it's one of those where you just got to make sure your communication is... On point. On point. And good with ATC. ATC is your friend. They will help you for the most part. They recommend to evaluate and, where necessary, develop common guidelines on emergency procedures and phraseology to be used between ATC, Fire Brigade, Airport Authorities, and RCC. So making sure everyone's on the same page, pretty much. They recommend to expand the training of pilots and ATC personnel to include the awareness that the handling of emergency situations, not only the safety of airline slash passengers but also the risk to third parties especially residential areas should be considered so making sure planes don't go down in apartment buildings not that they had a choice in the matter they didn't to be fair unavoidable however i would say electing to do a 360 turn over the entirety of amsterdam was probably not a great idea no it really probably would have been fortunate for them if they had crashed into a field somewhere. Well, but even doing their 360, maybe they should have elected to do it elsewhere. I don't know the full region of the area if there's somewhere else that they could have done that extensive turn. But in your in an emergency, you generally try to avoid populated areas. Yes. Well, and if who you would, can, who knows? Maybe they would have lost engines somewhere, and there would have been casualties anyway. Or it probably not as many casualties as was estimated yeah so but you know trying to find a place where you can land slash crash that's not gonna be with a bunch of people yeah would have been wise it is part of training for flight crews yes if you can't land somewhere desirable like find a lake find uh, grassy Field, fields. A clearing. Find a highway that's not that doesn't have a bunch of people. Find somewhere that doesn't have a bunch of people around it. If you can. Hard to do from the sky. Kind of depends on how high up you are. Uh, okay. They recommend to review design philosophy of fire warning systems to preclude false warnings upon engine separation. Not that that's really been a problem since, but you know. Not no, really. but at the same time, it's like. Just what in a, case this happens. What there's a, waste a big of, difference. What a waste of time having to deal with this issue, too. Yeah, and then, like, there's no uh, engines to put out, so... A lot, of this, a lot of this was fixed when they add in, like, the computers, the flight, the newer flight computers. And the yeah, dis- that just doesn't happen anymore. With all the sensors and everything, it would tell you, like, hey... There's no engine. <laughs> it's not even there to put a fire out. It's like, so. you know what? It's not... Don't even worry about it. It's not even there anymore. Well, yeah, because then you can... Look at the weight concern. Like, because yeah. if there's a fire, there's no weight concern, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's just fire. Putting out the fire. 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 
They recommend to review flight control design to ensure that flight control surfaces do not contribute adversely to airplane control in case of loss of power in control surfaces. Which they, there was a lot of things that fixed this with this and beyond this accident. With but hydraulic systems have backups and backups and backups and now. Uh, so many backups. There's ridiculous amount of backups. And this this didn't happen that long after UA two thirty two where that particular. I don't know, what deficiency vulnerability was discovered. Yes, that. So this was probably still in development at this time. Yeah. Well, and Boeing probably knew it was a problem. Yeah. And then, I mean, to be fair, only one system went out, the one to the right wing. Well, it was two hydraulic systems, two of four. Yeah. So the other two probably went to the other wing or other control surfaces. But point is, there should be backups. There are backups now. Yes. This is, this is complete. Like, they'll, they'll shut off. There'll be, like, there's shutoffs where the flaps are that if the flaps detach, you don't lose hydraulic systems anymore. Yep, there's so many backups now. So, all the back... They, there was enough that happened in a row <laughs> that they're like, you know what? We'll fix this. We'll fix it. They recommended that fire resistance of the DFR and CVR should be improved so maybe they don't get absolutely obliterated. Again, there's only so much you can do in this particular field well, and as science improves then we know that there's other materials that can help with that well and yeah. now you can have a solid state fdr and cvr that are probably like the size of my hand so it's easier for Except those for the gigantic boxes that well, you see on like yeah air disasters know, where it's not tape anymore everything's digital i mean in this case it was tape which is part of the issue they had with the fdr right. that it tore in four places something like that well and the cvr probably just burned i mean at this point, they were somewhat fire resistant, but not explosive well, resistant. And there's there's limitations to the fire resistance as in regards of time, and having to dig that out of a burning building overnight probably exceeded the limitations of that fire resistance. Yeah, it, even if they found it, there was no way to know if they could actually use it. So this is basically them just saying, "Hey, if you can, can you make this better? If not, like I get it." Which it is better now, so. in general. They're Read smaller. the last one. They're digital. Okay, last one. They recommend to investigate the advantages of installation of cameras for external inspection of the airplane from the flight deck. Oh, my God. We've read this on how many flights in a row now? Okay, well, this one is specific to the external of the airplane, not necessarily the cockpit. It's just... Guys. This was... I mean, this was done to some extent well, so like the i mean Qantas 32 right like they were able to figure out there was an issue with the engine because they saw the airplane from the tail mounted camera so in some regard this was implemented it's just not 100 percent implemented and it's really hard to retrofit planes with this kind of stuff newer planes it's different because you can redesign it so it has stuff like this or just design it so it has stuff like that. right but unlike you, retrofitting planes is the big problem because retrofitting planes is where it's a lot of money and man hours and all that stuff. For something that doesn't directly impact survivability. Right. Because it's good for investigators to know, like, in general, like, oh, this happened because we can see it on that camera. But the other problem of that is, is like I said, retrofitting it to older airplanes. Now, like, in this regard, so a, a lot of... Our exasperation on this is the request to add cameras to the flight deck to the cockpit. That's a rant in another episode you've heard before. In this or several episodes. <laughs> in this specific regard, a camera would have helped the crew know that, oh, hey, engines three and four are gone. 
I know you can't see it, but the camera sees it. So I understand implementing something like that. Yeah. So the NTSB released a couple of recommendations that Miranda probably doesn't have pulled up. So I'm going to read them real fast. I, I do not. So they recommended issuing a new AD or revising an AD for this particular part. It doesn't say specifically what I could. It was done. The pylon, the, the fuse pin, everything in that. Yes, yes this was done. They recommended issuing a Telegraphic Airworthiness Directive, or AD, to require the installation of a mid-spar fuse pin indicating stripe, a stripe on the fuse pin, on each side of the Boeing 747 engine nacelle struts in accordance with the provisions of Boeing Service Bulletin blah blah blah, and to require a check for wing-to-pylon misalignment before each flight. This was not done. Probably because they just redesigned the entire thing. Yeah. To have to do that? For every single flight. It's kind of a pain. It would be. Pain in the buttocks. They recommended requiring the Boeing Commercial Airplane Company obtain flight test data that can be used in an engineering analysis to validate that the pylon to wing attachments have adequate safety margins for all flight conditions and engine configurations. This was done. Well, and it was also recommended by the Never the Netherlands. Netherlands. And, it, I mean, Boeing was like, yeah, this is a problem. <laughs> We're just going to fix it. And the last one, the NTSB recommended requiring that the Boeing Commercial Airplane Company make available a newly designed fuse pin. Yeah, that happened. Stainless steel, friendos. Yeah, they, they stopped using the non-stainless steel, use stainless steel. Yay for chromium. So it doesn't corrode, yeah. Or it doesn't corrode as fast, at least. Yeah. It still has potential for corrosion, but much, much slower. Okay. So we have a listener question. It's from a fake name, which I realized is because it's a fake name. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Sorry we didn't get to it for a while. We kind of forgot about it. (laughs) We see it. We're going to answer it now. So it's about Cactus 1549, which if you don't know, it's the Miracle on the Hudson. Okay. Go back. Uh, It was, uh, what was it? Like late something or other? I don't remember. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Late June, right? Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. It was a time. So they say... I don't think it was mentioned in the story, but I believe the rat deployed in addition to Sullenberger starting the APU to run the generators. Did the crew deploy or did it deploy automatically? Does the rat need augmentation from the APU? Is the APU sufficient enough to do the job without the rat? Or is the rat needing to be redesigned to run more systems and provide more power in case the APU is in-op for some reason? Okay, that's a lot right there. Great question. So we actually looked back kind of. Um, I don't think they actually deplored, deployed the rat at all. It deployed automatically. So it, oh, okay. A, it deployed automatically, but there is the capability for the crew to manually deploy the rat. Some point in the CVR, the crew determined that they did not need to do so because they had started the APU on its own. Right, and the APU can start without the rat. Yes, and the APU also does provide enough electrical power to that they didn't need the rat to the critical systems that the rat was not. The rat is really absolute critical systems. It actually probably wouldn't provide anywhere near as much power as the APU does. And for the record, rat stands for ram air turbine. It is yes. a little fan that pops out the bottom of the plane and becomes a little miniature generator for absolutely critical systems. Right. Thank so you. if if yeah, the if the APU is an op, would the rat be critical? Probably for just critical flight stuff. I mean, critical instruments. Should it have more capability? I don't know. Should it be able to generate more power? I think 
that that would be putting a lot on a, just is a fan. It's a fan that pops out and runs from the airflow. Yeah, and really, to be honest, it, it rarely happens that both engines fail and the APU isn't working. It's really that both engines fail, period. So yes. the only time that that would really truly be useful would, would be something like the Gimli glider where the fuel was completely exhausted. That was pretty yeah. much the idea behind the rat was a fuel exhaustion. Absolute must have. Because in most other circumstances, you can probably start the APU. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, if you're at the point of fuel exhaustion and you're relying on the ram air turbine to run the plane, you're in way more trouble than that thing can possibly afford you help with. Yep. You, that can place basically get you to where you know where you are. You can he- you have the radio, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And you'll be able to kind of sort of land the plane somewhere. Kind of sort of. Right. it. And probably belly land it. Depending. But the APU provides m- more power. Way more. As in, it can also power the hydraulic systems, which, which on is, an Airbus is a critical thing. Yeah, like... Uh, uh, you know, the fly landing by gear and fly-by-wire and it could potentially help you get flight control systems working and all that. So so it's a critical thing. It I know that probably important. didn't answer your entire question. But I like that we have people who are willing to ask these complicated questions, things about like a rat, because actually most people don't think about this And we didn't really talk about it. And the, the general episode. public doesn't really know what a rat is or that it exists or why it's there. Like, yeah. Emily. Emily. <laughs> You're welcome. It makes me kind of proud that we can, like, talk about this stuff and you guys know. Do you have more to your question or you want to ask us another question, please let us know. I'm sorry it took us so long. We kind of, like I said, we, we just kept recording in the last couple weeks. Like, I moved and Christy and Nick had a bunch of stuff going on and it, it was just crazy. Excuse the dog whining downstairs. Uh, so, thank There's you for your, your question. There's your half answer, yes. I guess. Also, um, that was... L L eighteen sixty two. Okay, I almost said the right word, so that's good. You were so close. <laughs> Thanks, Emily, for joining us. Thanks. You're welcome. That was fun. Your comic relief sometimes helps so much. Sometimes it's like I would like, say it's absolutely vital. Probably that, that's why we when you're here. You. <laughs> uh, if you want to hear more about that, you can go to the post episode, which you can get to if you're at least a five dollar patron, which is bloopers. basic. Or is it economy? You're basic. That one's business class. Oh, it's business. It's economy, business, first class flight crew. So if you're a business class, you can listen to post-episode stuff with us. So there is no basic. No basic. We don't have basic economy. Because we're nicer than that. Because we're nicer than that. <laughs> we don't make you pay for bags. Granted, we fly basic economy <laughs> all, all the time. All the time. It's so. really nice when you really don't have bags. <laughs> if you it have, is really nice. I mean, check out everything that you get for Patreon. You can check it out on the website. You can check it out on Patreon. If you look us up on Patreon, we'll pull right up. There is a slight sort of added benefit that is coming. One of our patrons requested... In- a Christy sewed instead of a Miranda sewed. So you'll get a Christy sewed and a Miranda sewed next month. Potentially next month, maybe September. I make we'll see zero it promises. It'll happen. It'll happen eventually. Also, we'll make more sporadic mini sewed eventually. The clue that I will give for the Christy sewed that I'm doing is one word, and it will mean something to the person who requested it, as well as potentially others. And that word is crocodile. That is all. Thank you. Hashtag crocodile. So you have to at least be a $10 patron or first class patron to hear my episodes or the one Christy sewed we're going to do. We do do sporadic mini sods. Uh, We will do more of those. 
I promise they'll happen. That's why they're sporadic. We were like, we'll do them eventually because we're busy people, okay? It happens. But those also uh, are included with the blooper reel and the uh, post episodes on the uh, The business class. We also won't be offended if you join for like a month, binge everything, and then leave. I will not be offended. We had a couple people leave because financial stuff. I mean, we get it, friends. No, but seriously, if you want to just like hop on, listen to everything, and then leave... Do it. I full power to you. Uh, honestly, even if you even want to downgrade, because there's ad-free episodes for economy. So um, we have a couple people who just want the ad-free episodes, and that's great. And we give them to you every week. So there's that. All right, friends. Sorry that was a, a little long plug there. Remember to send us your stories for August. Again, you can send us any story, but we asked for the theme to be flight crew or flight, flight school. school stories because it's back to school month. And I have another. I have another one with me. Another Emily, teacher. Another teacher. <laughs> Emily is a teacher, and this like is going to be your week. first. My first. Well, your first had, school year. Yeah, my first school year. Your, re- your first real school year as a real teacher. I had a whole class of maximum eight kids in the summer, so that was. Oh wow! Holy, <laughs> I was supposed to have sixteen. Eight showed up. Oh great! <laughs> great. That's fun. And that was fluctuating the whole time. Great. Well. So uh, there you go. Okay, thanks so much for listening, guys, and thank you for those of you who submit stories and questions and things. We love that. Again, you don't have to submit a question about an episode. You can always just ask us a question about us or about the podcast or whatever. If you have a question, or you can email us, we'll email you back. It'll probably be me. You've been warned, because I'm the one who sees all the emails. (laughs) You can ask about their super cool guests, because they have a couple. That's true. That we true. have one here true. today. Brendan is not included in that. <laughs> <laughs> She's officially fine. gotten to be a host anyway, so. Thank you so much for listening. Have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.